All right, welcome to another episode. I think this is what episode three. Yeah. You've made it to three. Of we did the it. board game triangle. We have solidified our name. So TBGT. I think it's fitting that it's on the third episode too. So you know, it's it's all the power of threes, baby. Yeah, awesome. So today we're going to be talking about different play styles and different types of games that fit into different play styles. So that'll be super exciting. But before we dive into that, I just wanted to like ask around, you know, how are you guys feeling? We've recorded two podcasts. Are you are you talking about this with your friends? Are you hyping it up? Yeah, I uh, I put out on my, uh, my personal Facebook feed and got back several people who want to be guests at some point. So that, that might be something we can think about, but... Yeah, I'm family. Uh, family is liking it so far, but uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited to be uh, to be having some episodes for people to listen to. I haven't talked about it too much yet, but I'm I did just uh, I I made a cursory glance to see what sort of podcasts were out there in at least in the Spotify realm, and to my surprise, I, and this is maybe because most of the content is probably on YouTube because obviously with board games there's a huge visual element to things, but. I did notice that there was not really a lot of board gaming podcasts. There's a lot of D&D stuff. Um, and when we were trying to get really cute with even generating our image that is going to be on the podcast itself right now, our logo, uh, all of that was also very D&D, like just dice oriented sort of things. So I'm pretty fascinated to see how this ends up panning out uh, in, in the long run. So especially given that there's just it doesn't seem like there's a lot of content just talking about board games. There's a lot of board game reviews which I don't remember if we touched upon as a group that we're not really interested in focusing on like a review heavy style. We really just want to talk about games and what excites us about them. So I'm excited to fill that space that hope that seems to have a void at the moment. Sarah, are people close to you excited about you being a podcaster? Yeah, so I haven't like broadcasted out into the ether yet, but I will say my big news for the week is that today Morgan did say that he would listen, which is huge because my husband is not into podcasts at all, hates podcasts, but he said he would listen today. So I'm very excited about now that. Now that, I like it. All right. We're, we're, we're rubbing up. So we've already gotten him. I, I think I think T.I. broke the ice. All right. We got him to play Twilight Imperium. And then he realized how awesome that was. So he's like, of course, people want to talk about board games, too. Like, it just makes sense. Yeah, exactly. So he wasn't super into board games, and now he kind of is. I think anybody that's played Twilight Imperium can say that they're into board games. And <laughs> he's fair. not super into podcasts, but he'll listen to mine. So there we go. All right. So let's let's jump in. Let's talk about playstyle And what do we mean by that? And why does it matter? Well... Yeah, I think I think with playstyle, this is going to dictate. There's a there's a lot of things going on here because, in some ways, you're going to have your own playstyle, but your playstyle is often going to be dictated by the people that you can kind of get roped roped in with you. So, you, this is all about like figuring out what sorts of games you and your group gravitate towards, or maybe because you gravitate towards something that's how you can also kind of rope in your own group to be gravitated towards the same things. Cause in many ways it's pretty common that the group that you're going to be involved with a lot 
they are probably going to be new to begin with to board games unless you just happen to meet the right group of people. Maybe, hopefully they have a mutual interest in board games to begin with. And they're just like, oh, I've always wanted to get into them, but like, it's so intimidating. You know, there's there's so much to, to learn and know about. And I mean, there is. Uh, if you look at, you know, the the general stratosphere of board games right now, it's there's a lot to absorb. So I think this this is all about kind of getting your toes wet and understanding what different gaming categories there are out there understanding then what games you might like based on those categories and then just figuring out in general what sorts of games you might enjoy it's just kind of like helping you figure out stepping stones from one game to another game i've really liked the term uh, of being a board game sommelier um and really because I, mean, I have 70 board games i think you know tim has probably 80 85 board games too many it's, it's enough board games that when we have someone over to play games you can say Oh, what game does people want to play? And people can absolutely get lost. If it's a if it's a hardcore board gamer who knows what they, you know, there's this game I've been wanting to play and you have it, let's do that. That's great. That's where that kind of approach works well. But I find that most of the time when I'm trying to get a board game to the table, I need to either pick the right board game for the people or I need to put together the right people to play a board game I want to play. And so Doing that uh, does require having an understanding of what kinds of games are going to appeal to what people so that someone who's new to the hobby or an experience isn't going to bounce off so that someone who has been around forever isn't going to be like, oh, I don't like that kind of game and never come over to a board game night at my house again. But it's really trying to f- try and understand, like, not, not just saying, like how good is a game, but is this the kind of game that's going to be a good fit for a certain group of my friends? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I feel like this episode is going to be really good for people who have a bunch of board games and want to figure out how to fit that with the group that they're with. But it's also going to be great for people who are maybe newer to board games who want to be able to explain what their board, like what their preferences are, know, figure out what's out there, what sounds interesting to you, what fits with your personality and what fits with like, what's going to keep you interested. Yeah. And I think it's a, I think this episode is going to be all over the place. First of all, I'm just going to say, because it's, this touches on a lot of things, because even if you just look at, for example, if I look at my board game collection, I can think of several games on that shelf where a large part of what drove me to purchase that is like, I have no game that does X. Mm-hmm. And like, I want to make sure if I have people come over, I'm like, oh, this game is perfect for them. Like, I know they'll like this. Because oftentimes I'll look at my shelf and be like, man, I just don't really have enough like social games that if I have if I happen to have a very, a very social day where a lot of people want to partake, which happens sometimes, I don't have games that can accommodate more than six people. I just don't. So it's just kind of having a board game for every situation or also if you're starting a collection like this. What we're talking, what I've just talked about right there is a lot more like, okay, you have a pretty solid collection and now you're just trying to cater to like more of your audience in general of people who you want to invite. But for the people who are building their collection, Mm -hmm. this is going to allow them to also think about like what kind of games to start looking at and maybe, you know, hit the target a little faster than maybe you normally would because there's there's so much hype out there in the board game world in terms of just like people hopping on the hype train of things and it's easy really, really easy to get caught up in that when you're first like looking at new games. And so and, and it can be a great game that you're looking at getting or, or or playing, but it's just not something that you like to play. And so if you're yeah, if your budget and your plan is to buy one or two games to add to your collection and you get a game that you know you play once and it's like, yeah, it just isn't for me, that's that's 
definitely going to be a disappointment uh, to you as, as, a, as, a, as a board game collector. Today, uh, after yoga class, I was talking with people and realizing, you know, people who are thinking that they don't like board games or people who had only had one or one or two board games they've ever really enjoyed in their life. And as I was talking with them and just trying to understand and think about what game would I bring to this group? And I probably am not going to bring up a game to, you know, a yoga event. But if I were, what game would, would fit the different play styles and interests of the people here? Because that mm-hmm. is exactly where my brain starts going when people start talking about what kind of games they like and hate. And you can also, uh, if you know some categories of games, mm-hmm. you'll also know what people will most commonly be exposed to. Like yes. social de- social deduction games in general are probably the most widely known. Things like Ultimate Werewolf or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to be games that people ha- will at least have some flavor of or apples to apples. Everyone knows that. Or, you know, the more, you know, adult version Cards Against Humanity. Mm-hmm. These are the sorts of things that like you're going to know people will already have experience with. And then so now you know how to kind of bridge that gap and kind of like bring them over to try something new. To be able to say to someone like this is like Cards Against Humanity with X is helpful to them compared to just talking about it purely in theoretical terms. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Okay, so Ken, if you had a table of four to six people who were just like you and had your preferences, what would your what was your game like? What what's your play style? What do you prefer to be playing? Definitely, uh, you know, from earlier saying that you know Twilight is my my favorite game. I, I like heavy games. I like competitive games. Uh, I, I tend to like them to be, uh, I'd say, mostly strategic, you know, or mostly skill based. A little bit of uh, luck involved. I don't tend to like them to be pure pure zero luck kind of things, uh, purely mechanical, but Playing games that, that, that I don't like and earning that, I can end up feeling frustrated with my decisions don't seem like they matter. Things are just completely random and chaotic. My, my great plan that I've been working on for an hour comes to nothing because of just a flip of a card. Uh, those are those are things that, that bounce me off of a game. So when I'm looking at games for people like myself, it's, it's going to be a heavier thing with lots of strategy and lots of contemplation of interesting choices that impact the the outcome of the game. How about you, Tim? I, uh, this is probably why Ken and I get along pretty well in terms of just our, our board game tastes are probably pretty similar. I, above all else, optimality is what I'm all about. So if you can make a decision, I don't even care if it's going to let me win the game. I could pick a strategy right from the beginning of the game, already knowing that it's maybe not even a winning strategy. I don't care if I can optimize that and make really cool decisions along the way, then I'm having a good time. I don't even care if I win. Um, it's, it's about doing, finding things that are unique and just in general, yeah, just finding, finding value in just making different plays that maybe people just wouldn't have thought of or wouldn't have tried. Like I'm always down when I start a game, if I can, and there's an avenue that you can generally pick a unique strategy to do from the outset. I like to try and do that. Or I like to go to games that. There's no way you can choose what you get to do from the beginning of the game because the setup is unique every time. That's probably my favorite thing to do overall. So yeah, just anything that doesn't require winning. Yeah, that's especially fun when if you are playing with new players or, or people who are uh, who are less experienced, where if you're just, you know trying to optimize a strategy you know is is subpar, but you can do that to the best possible is, is a lot of fun to do with with those kind of games. Yeah, exactly. It's just about figuring out the puzzle as as much as possible. It's not it's not really about well, a lot of games also just completely obfuscate whether you're winning anyway, which right. you know, there there can be a lot of value in that because then 
I think it encourages you to just, no, 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 just worry about yourself. All right. Don't worry about if you, if other people are doing the, the most winningest strategy. First of all, we've already hidden that we don't even know if they are or aren't, but yeah, just having the option to just explore things and then really just focus on yourself. That's, those are the sorts of games that I like, but I also don't mind player interaction either. Like, because that's usually the easiest way to facilitate like, oh, I had a plan and now it's totally fallen apart and I have to figure out how to make the best of it. And usually having other players get in your way of that is the best way to facilitate that, or at least the easiest way that games have found to facilitate that. So, Sarah, what kind of uh, what kind of games do you tend to prefer to play if you're at a table with people like yourself? I think if I had a table of just me and we had to figure out what game we wanted to play, we would never figure it out. It would be like going through <laughs> Netflix and like spending three hours to find a 30 minute show to watch. Like I'm so versatile, I think. I like games that are maybe a little lighter, maybe a little less strategy. But other than that, like I'm wide open. I, anything that's going to be like pretty interactive. I say that I like grew up on solitaire. So I like, <laughs> I like games like that too. I don't know. I think it would be really hard for me. I, I kind of like a little bit of everything, mm-hmm. which is kind of my style. Some games totally tap into that multiplayer solitaire feel, though. Yep. You know, they, you're just here to do an activity with friends, which is a totally valid category of games. That's Euro games, essentially. Games that have a really well-executed theme and, and graphics and things like that seem like they appeal to you a lot as well. If it's if it's a pretty game or a game about animals. Oh, my mm-hmm. gosh. Don't even get me started on what was that game that we played where you build a zoo? Oh, uh, Ark Nova. Yep. Ark Nova. That was a great one because all I wanted was like flamingos and a cheetah and I got them perfect. I didn't win. I came in last place. Loved it. (laughs) See, and this is why you can't say you're not a a heavy game enjoyer though, because Ark Nova is not simple. Like people describe Ark Nova as like a complicated terraforming Mars. And it's not to say that terraforming Mars is a hard game per se, but it's, you're already reaching that like more advanced pool of, of games when you talk about that. So. All right. I'm trying to, I still try to figure you out from time to time, Sarah, because <laughs> I, I think that we're rubbing off on you, unfortunately. All right. You used to <laughs> counterbalance us, but now we're, we're roping you in. You know, we played our game of spirit Island last night and you were, you were crushing it. <sighs> Three episodes in, we're already ruining the balance of the podcast. Yeah, it's true. Yep. It's true. <laughs> so I, I yeah, because I in the past have not loved Spirit Island. It's complex, but I caffeinated yesterday and I was ready to go. <laughs> and that was, gosh darn it, the best game of Spirit Island I've ever played. I was very into it. It was great. <laughs> it could have been because you were an angry turtle and you got to squish things. So that I... could have been. That's like 90% of it, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I did love the spirit that I was playing. What was the name of it? I can't... Uh, uh, something Eyed Behemoth. I can't remember. Ember Eyed Behemoth. Ember Eyed Behemoth. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. it was great. So, All right. Slight, slight, uh, um, slight tangent or, you know, go- going off the rails there. But yeah, we all got to play the new... Ex- they, uh, they decided to humor me and play the new expansion that I got in the mail a few days ago. So it was awesome. Yeah, very yeah. fun. Super, super cool. All right. So does anybody have any like funny game style or game player type stereotypes that are. Oh, is it? Is this like with magic where it's just like, I'm a Timmy. 
I like to have giant creatures and blow shit up. <laughs> or, like, yeah. So if you didn't know about that, there's like categories in magic of like, I am this sort of player and uh, they have names. I remember Timmy because of course my name is Tim and like, I, that's the only reason I remember that, but there's a few others. So there's like, there's like archetypes of players that they've nailed down. They're like, if you are this kind of person, you need to play these colors in magic because you'll have a great time. I feel like there's some themes. So I've played with people who are like this archetype of, I know everything that's going on at this table and I've played your game through and I've played your game through and I know where I'm at. So like, I don't know, there's like the super analytical person. There's the person like our friend Andrena who is like, what are the rules again? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. She is fun to play mm-hmm. with. Um, and then they're like, I don't know. I have like a the friend. chaos agents, basically. Yeah. There's like the chaos people. I know I have a friend who's like making his own board game. So he's like constantly thinking about what he would include in that and what elements of this game. And then he would bring up his game that he's creating. So there's that kind of person. I don't know. Man, I just thinking about it now. So we, uh, so Ken and I have a, uh, a Twilight Imperium group that we play with. And one of the players in that group, he's an absolute chaos agent. He doesn't give two shits about winning. Now, granted, most of us don't care that much about winning, but we definitely want to win. Yep. But he literally gives no shits at all. He is just there to cause turmoil. And to the to that point, he's even willing to just throw his entire game away. Like if, if, if you do something really nasty to him his whole his sole purpose in the game is to just is just to make terrible decisions and ruin you and that that kind of play style kind of irks me a little bit but i can kind of see it if you feel like you're already out of the game and someone's done something to really just totally take you out that sort of thing kind of frustrates me I don't know. Just thought of that randomly yep, yep. Uh, in terms of just d- the different types of people who like play games. And then you also have to your point, Sarah, Ken is definitely that kind of person where if you have the chance and you're doing a multi-session TI game, he is going to have every strategy mapped out. And the best part about TI is someone can then turn one, do an action that you completely weren't expecting. And it all just unravels right, right in front of your eyes. I love that game. Uh, my current online TI game, I, I had a round fully planned out and then made a last second decision to change a detail that then made the whole, yeah, the whole round unravel. And I was like, Oh, nope, that was, that was terrible. But yeah, I definitely <laughs> still love having master plans and backup plans and layers. And yeah, it's, uh, it, it, the thing I love about, about, uh, games is the, the mechanical challenge of figuring them out. It's, I mean, understanding those puzzles, but yeah, there's not really these like there's not really these predetermined stereotypes, I would say, overall. I think I think the if you want to say the the problem or the issue with being able to do something like that is there's just so much variety in board games now. Yeah. There's not and it's not to the point that maybe you could if you looked at a specific game, like I hate to like go back to Spirit Island a lot, but like there's so much variety in Spirit Island that you could probably be like, oh, do you like to do this? well, you should play this spirit because then you get to like only get major powers and then you just get to make everything explode and everything dies in front of you, but you're going to be terrible for the first top five turns of the game. Like once, once there's an, like if a game has enough diversity, you could probably boil a specific game down to s- some stereotypes, but I think it's too hard to really stereotype players in games overall. I mean, maybe you could, 
it's just it's so tough because there's not a lot of direct translations from one game to another yeah in terms of how a game plays out it's like all of the all of the traits of being a game player kind of on a spectrum so it's hard to pigeonhole Mm -hmm. one specific type of person but before Mm -hmm. we jump into that conversation i want to go off of what you're saying tim let's talk about like different types of games like what are the game categories that we're talking about when we're thinking about matching someone's play style to a game what's out there tim mentioned earlier uh social deduction games and that's you know that's gonna be like your your werewolf mafia the kinds of games that people played probably in high school and in college uh but there's many, many more games like that of those types and varieties now that, that play with all the mechanics in those generally those are gonna be games of people who enjoy social interaction and especially specifically enjoy uh, trying to lie and hide lies from each other are going to enjoy usually good gateway games just yep. for that reason alone they they don't focus so much on this rule book this board that you need to like be aware of it's just in general it's a lot more about like uh, it, it's a social tool which a lot of people see board games that way and i mean not to say that i don't view them that way either like i host board game nights to hang out with my friends yep like that's otherwise i would do a different activity but, you know, some of them are uh, uh, allow more interactivity than others. And I would say that social deduction, it's like that's the whole point of those board games is like it is all about talking to other people, lying to them, just that that's that's the bread and butter of that. And so if you it's usually the the gateway game for most people to get people to at least try something new. And a lot of social deduction games have gotten really good at, you know, harnessing that that group of people which is also why sometimes as you kind of get more advanced in games you kind of fall off of them a little bit because it in some ways they can kind of feel like a one-trick pony in a lot of ways and Mm -hmm. it's really hard to like it just starts to feel really samey after a while and kind of forced but for new players uh, and also there's times where i am like ready to play a game like that and just just get drunk have have and have a blast like those games are great for that it was really cool seeing this this mechanic being used in, in a game like Among Us that was you know huge on the internet. Oh, true. For, well, you know, a, a good year, maybe a couple of years in there, and and mm-hmm. that's it's purely a a social deduction game trying to figure out who is the imposter. And mm-hmm. you know, obviously, if someone sees a crime being committed, then you know, then they know. But most of the time, that game, most eliminations are: Are you the imposter? Okay, well, you said you said no too slowly. You must be you must be the imposter. Let's kill you. And that's, like I said, for a lot of uh, info gamers, that can be a, a great way to ease in. Um, there are definitely people who really, really hate the uh, the deception, the dishonesty, trying to maintain a straight face with that. They don't like the metas that develop. You know, playing people we don't know can be can be weird. These there definitely are games that again I'm talking about our, our theme, like they're games that people can either love or hate. And if you if you know you hate social deduction games, and someone raises one and say, yeah, maybe maybe that one's not for me, yeah, it's okay. If, uh, if you like one, then there's a very good chance you'll like other social deduction games. Absolutely. Yeah. And also one downside of some social deduction games is they often have player elimination. So make sure you kind of keep that in mind as well. Because I, I would say one thing you have to be careful with is people will be extra sensitive to being bored yep. if they're like new to like board games. Now, usually social deduction games have a good job of counteracting that because there's usually so much craziness going on that people are involved anyway, but they may, they may feel, you know, a little bit of a bad taste in their mouth if, you know, they're eliminated early, which can happen. Mm -hmm. And then they don't get to really interact or play. Uh, So 
you know, take that with a grain of salt. It's definitely like I like games like Avalon that don't have the, the player elimination, but are still uh, Secret Hitler is another one that, you know, does that where you can have that social deduction dynamic, but people are still always part of the game. There's, there's not elimination taking place. And, and mm-hmm. I like that about those. Probably social deduction are like low on my list of, of what kinds of games I like. So let's move on to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about worker placement. <laughs> It's not, it's not uncommon. I would say that as you get more into games, like you start to then migrate over to things like work replacement game. Oh no. I don't think it's that I'm too advanced or anything like that. I think I'm just like an unwilling introvert. (laughs) Like I don't want to talk to people about things like that. I don't want to lie. I mean, my wife's the same way. She doesn't, she doesn't like it at all. She has to be in a very specific mood to enjoy a game like that. Like if everyone's into it, sure. I will play along and I will probably have fun, but would I choose a game where I have to like control the, no, no, mm. I would not. I love how Sarah's like, I'm versatile. I like all games that are first category mm-hmm. we hit. Yeah. I don't like those. <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, social deduction. I really think so. It's the largest catch 22 of all the categories yes. because it's like, you're going to probably get the most new people into it, but then you're also going to, turn off a lot of the uh, like more board game veterans because most of them have seen it and it, f- it feels very samey. But enough on that. Well, let's talk a little bit about worker placement. Like our like our dear leader, Sarah, has led us to. Yeah. Um, so worker placements are probably one of my favorites. So what do we mean by worker placement? We're not going to go into... The, the goal of this episode is not to go into huge details about it, but these are such major categories that you're going to see these same mechanics again and again and again. So at least having a cursory understanding of what they are, you'll at least kind of know what to expect. So the main mechanism of worker placement is everybody only has so many dudes that they're allowed to do things with. And you basically put your, everybody takes turns putting a dude out to do a thing. And now that spot is taken up. Nobody else is allowed to do that thing anymore, or it might be more expensive to do that thing if you wish to do it. And so it is really good about, if you like optimizing, oh, worker placement is just br- lives and breathes optimization because you always have to be so particular about why you do things, when you do things, and knowing that it could be gone by the time it comes around to you. Now, I would say that it's probably my favorite category in general just because of the every decision feels so hard. Mm-hmm. Or, or it's very easy because you know exactly what you want. And you, it's just you're... Sometimes even that laser focus can be a bad thing because then you're not really paying attention to something else that maybe nobody else really cared about that thing that you were so desperately wanting and it could have waited till later. And so there's that game of just optimization there that is my favorite. Yeah, and I think compared to social deduction games, it often doesn't feel as personally targeted by people who, you know, for people who who don't want to be called out, put on the spot. You go around and puts your thing, and someone might block you. They might go to the place you wanted to go to, but but typically with most worker placements, that doesn't feel as as much like someone is trying to, is trying to hurt you. Is that their strategy just got in the way of yours? It definitely feels less personal. Absolutely, people who who, who feel like they're being attacked or targeted by something like a social deduction game often will find a lot more peace and comfort with social or with worker placements because you can do that strategy and not and not feel uh, as much in conflict with the other players directly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, you always have to worry about, so there's another mechanism that people should understand that there's like verbiage around. It's called take that is a lot of times the way Mm -hmm. that they call it in in board games where people like, 
they have just mechanisms in the game that intentionally affect other players. And sometimes that can feel extra bad when you have a choice of what player that affects. Uh, and worker placement obviously can still, still feel a little bit that way when it's like, you know, that somebody else is maybe focused on a particular resource or something and you still go and you take that spot. So they may, may feel, you know, personally attacked from that level, but usually in a worker placement game, people understand a little bit more because they usually have the same amount of choices or same amount of workers as you do, and they can only apply that in so many ways. So they, there's generally more understanding there with that. So if you, if that mechanism sounds interesting to you, I uh, just optimization in general, and also trying to still have some player interaction, but keeping it to a dull roar in terms of hurting people's feelings. This is another good category to go to, but, uh, and I also think it's easy to understand too. It's not, it's not like a hard concept to grasp. Yep. It can vary by game based on how complex the, the placement, uh, powers are and, and what, and, and what those end up, uh, impacting with the gameplay. So there are some worker placement games that can be very confusing, but as a, as a mechanic, it's, it's very straightforward and, and not something that mm -hmm. yeah you put your man there and he does the thing that's on the square so it, it i think it, it's a very intuitive mechanic that can in some mm -hmm. games become very complex all right mm -hmm. so we've talked about like in general what what these types of games are what are some examples just to like solidify it make this more concrete what are some like good that. worker placement um, games viticulture is uh, a really good introduction oh uh, i do workers. love that game yeah that's good yeah uh, Lords of Waterdeep is uh, one one of these that I've, I've played a, a quite a fair bit of. Champions of Midgard. Yeah. Ah, that's the one I was thinking of. Champions yep. of Midgard with the Vikings and the fighting trolls. That's a yeah, that's a good example too. I love that one. Definitely in my top five for sure. All right, so one of my favorite games that could be called a worker placement is actually like a worker placement slash deck builder. Mm -hmm. And that is, of course, mm -hmm. Dune Imperium. So let's talk oh, a little bit about. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> let's talk about deck uh, builders. Yeah. yeah. So deck builders as a mechanic. I mean, I don't think we can talk about deck builders without mentioning magic. Yeah. The the OG. Yes. So ma magic for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's how refined can you make a deck? And usually, uh, the whole purpose behind it is you usually start with a very small deck. And you are continually choosing what cards to add to it or removing cards. And and so that's that's the crunch behind all of it is you get to, again, this is another flavor of optimality, but it feels very different because you're also thinking about just how many cards should you add to it? How thick do you want to make it? It's not like you are stuck with the same amount of meeples or workers and having to distribute them. Although some worker placements allow you to add more. Usually it's only a few more. Whereas a deck, oftentimes you have a lot of flexibility around how many cards get added to that deck. And then you have to think about how fast do I cycle through that deck? It's it's just a lot of people will feel comfort in it as well if they come from a background like Magic. Like they'll get it intuitively just straight up. And they also understand why discard is good or they understand why getting to remove a card from your deck is good. Like they will innately understand those mechanics if they come from that background. Yep. And, and I will say for someone who's listening who's, main exposure to deck builders was magic most most modern deck builders are not requiring you to go out and buy booster packs and build very expensive decks Ooh, that's a good point most of what you're going to be seeing at this point are going to be things where you you know either buy a common set of cards are used by all the players or or even with you know some of the ones that have have uh, booster boxes of things 
it's a certain number of sets of cards that everyone then builds their decks from to go in and, and do to do competition with. That is very different in in terms of the expense and approach to revealing a deck towards something like as mentioned the OG uh, uh, deck builder of Magic. Mm-hmm. I get uh, yeah I guess your main distinction here um, and it's a really good one is that these are not the same as TCGs. Yes. Now, some people have kind of, there's been kind of like a blend of it. I think, I think, what is it? Arkham Horror, the card game. Like, I think that's kind of like a weird, a weird blend of it, but not really like, it's not in the sense that like you're competing with other players and you're trying to purchase the best cards, which is kind of what turned me off to magic eventually as much as I I love the game. But this is, yeah, it's a, it's a complete package in and of itself. And everybody kind of gets the same options. Usually there'll just be a pool of cards out available for you to draft from everybody's drafting from the same thing and it's just you're you're kind of combining it with other strategies net, yeah. net runner is the other big one i think right now that, mm, that does that kind right. of thing where you know again with with either arkham horror or net runner you will you know you will buy boxes they they put out every few months or every year that have a, a wide variety of cards that you can then build your decks with so if you're if you're playing those kinds of games competitively then yeah you you have to buy the boxes when they're available but it's not you know, it's not like a uh, a TCG where you have to keep buying boosters, hoping you get the card or go buy it on eBay. You just buy the box and you know you have the cards then to build whatever deck you're trying to build. If you're playing with friends, you you know whatever boxes you have um, available, you just build your decks from those and play the game. And I think on top of the deck builder mechanic, another similar kind of related is going to be your bag builder. And these are games that I... Oh, yeah. One and the same for sure. Freaking love. Because bag <laughs> builders usually have like a tactile element to it, especially if you're like Tim and you have all the like cases that go around the little things that you're putting in the bag. You would like to define for us, Sarah, what a bag builder is? I mean, I'm not so great at explaining specific things, but it's very much like a deck builder in that like there are a number of different options of things, like tokens. So I'm thinking of quacks. The, what's the Quacks of Quedlinburg. Yeah. Quacks of Quedlinburg. So like you've got a set number of that in that game, you're building a potion and you've got a bag of different ingredients. So you're picking different ingredients to put in your bag. And then, you know, you've got a chance to pull out different ingredients at different points in the game. So, you know, you're, it's kind of like a deck builder in that like what you add to the bag changes your chances of pulling something out, but it's just a different, Instead of holding a deck of cards, you're holding a bag that's got a lot of tokens in it. Another like I think about bag builders is that they, a lot of them are are very push your luck kind of a of a mechanic, where you're sitting there, you know, how how long can I pull things out of this bag before I get a bad thing or I I don't get the thing I need? They end up definitely having that that luck element. They have that feeling that if if I if I do badly this round, it's not necessarily my fault. I might have just gotten unlucky and pulled pulled the bad token. So they have they kind of have that luck element that makes it a little bit less a uh, little bit less personally painful, I guess, if you uh, if you have a bad round. Yeah, and like we said, Quacks of Quedlinburg is a great example of this. They've also done a great job of if you pull out too many bad tokens, they don't punish you too hard for it. It's just you know it's kind of a slap on the wrist. You're not going to do as well as somebody who didn't pull too many bad tokens, but. They do a really good job of not making you feel bad. So that's another great introductory game for people who are looking for something that honestly is fun for everyone. Everyone loves uh, this. This uh, Bag builders also typically go hand in hand with the concept of push your luck. 
mm-hmm. which the people love push your luck games. Like it's the way for them to, to scratch that gambling, that gambling itch without really gambling. And I, I, I have to say it works really well. There's just something about like shaking your hand in that bag, hearing all the all the little noises of what could be and finally getting to pull out that thing. And did it make or break you? Oh, it is so spicy. And then do you keep going? Do you Mm -hmm. keep going? Oh, that's even better. It just gets worse and worse because, you know, you pulled out all the good ones. (laughs) Yeah, but there's one more good one in there. You know, it's in there. (laughs) Look, I, I think it's a combination of it scratches that little dopamine hit itch that you get for like like you said, like gambling, like press your luck thing. But also if you are a type of person that like really strategizes and likes to think about like probabilities and get into the the weeds on that, you can also do that with these types of games. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's very similar to, I don't know, it's similar to deck builders, but it feels a little lighter, a little sillier which I like. And this just goes to show we're not on a big script. Uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, there's another very popular bag builder that has a dragon in it. I'm blanking on the name of it. I'll have to see if I can remember it, but there's another, another popular bag builder. So if you're looking for that, when I come up with the name with it, I'll mention it. But deck builder wise, there's also dominion. Mm-hmm. Uh, dominion is another huge one. That was kind of like the, the, the start of bag or, or sorry, start of deck building. So uh, if you're interested in the mechanic in the most raw form possible, I would probably say go look at Dominion. Yep. But otherwise, one thing that gets kind of tricky now in the modern board gaming world is a lot of people are finding ways to combine these mechanics as much as possible. So to Sarah's point, you've got Dune Imperium, which they have combined worker placement and deck building into one just chef's kiss package that if you're interested, you should try it out. I would not say it's for new players. But if people like the theme of Dune, they might be... Oh, Clank. Clank is the game. Yep, Clank is the bag builder. So if you're interested, uh, definitely check out Clank. It Basically, you guys are going down into a, uh, a dungeon where there's a dragon waiting for you. And you're just trying to loot as many, as many goodies as you can and get out alive. But the dragon is waiting. And you keep pulling out these, these cubes from a bag. And basically, that's when the dragon is going to attack you. So uh, that's another really interesting push your luck mechanism where the push your luck is against all the players. Yep. It's just a bag of something bad is going to happen eventually. And so that's also pretty fun. So check that out if you're interested. Yeah, I feel like that kind of lends itself into the next type of game, which is like a Tableau engine builder. So walk us through what that mechanism looks like. <laughs> it's a little tricky because a lot of people make distinctions between the two. I'm sure there is some very technical answer to, you know, why one is a Tableau versus why one is an engine builder. But I think they all kind of scratch the same itch. So I kind of pull them together and uh, I I will just accept the pitchforks as they come. But largely what we're talking about here is you're kind of, and this is also weird because a lot of board games, you just get better at doing a thing over time in the board game, right? Like that's kind of the whole idea of the board game. But this is strictly like you are building something that chains together multiple things. And it just like, you know, first you start and you're like, oh, I do X, but I only get a little bit of, of this thing when I do X. But then later on in the game, you're like, oh, well, now I get to do X, which then chains and allows me to do Y, which then Y allows me to do Z1 and Z2. Mm-hmm. So like it's just building out this thing that allow that like basically creates this chain reaction of things or you just you get better at doing a certain thing. 
And a lot of a lot of those Tableau slash engine builders kind of all pull together this idea of synergy yep. and and building these things that work together well and that combo together. So if you love comboing, like these are the sorts of games that you want to look for that allow you to really think about the best way of chaining things together. I mean, these often are intermingled with other mechanics that we've been talking about. So I, mean, I would say that, you know, often, you know, in Dominion, which is a deck builder, you're also building an engine because you're building combinations of cards that are going to work together. That's going to create a, a big set of cards that does something that may be different from what anybody else at the table is doing and, and producing different kinds of, of effects that may or may not help you uh, win. I've, I've seen people with Dominion build really cool engines that, don't really achieve a whole lot in terms of, uh, you know, game, game success, but yeah, they have a really cool engine. Yeah. And so like, what, with, you know, I think really when you're looking at those kind of tableaus or engine builders, you're, you're looking at something that, you know, the, the results in you having to look long-term over the course of a game and plan, um, how are these powers that I'm, I'm accruing? How are these cards that I'm drawing? How are these, um, you know, things that I'm playing out in front of me going to combo together into something that, you know, it's very, you know, is either very neat or helps you to win the game, depending on what mm-hmm. your your personal goals are. I definitely see a lot of engine people playing engine builders, though, develop a, a strategy for play that is definitely not built on winning. It's built on some cool effect that they want to fire mm-hmm. off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think engine builders definitely lend themselves to most uh, to just like, I don't give I don't I don't give a shit if I win. I want to yep. just do something cool and I want to feel like I really like built something neat. And I think that that's probably why that's also one of my favorite genres in general. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, it allows, allows a lot of flexibility. And that, uh, and honestly, like, that's probably why I like Spirit Island a lot. It has a lot of similar vibes of, like, kind of being an engine builder in some ways because you kind of figure out ways that you can combo spirits and cards together. I think that that is what makes that so interesting and the fact that it changes every turn what you can combo together depending on what's available to you what you draft more of like that it, it makes you think about that kind of thing all the time um yep. which is why i like that a lot yep i, I think definitely like the the engine building element of spirit island is is lighter than a, than a hardcore engine builder but yeah yes, it definitely has a lot agreed. of those kinds of elements but those are the things to know as again if we were looking at what kind of games you like to play or what kinds of games uh, your table is going to like you know knowing how how you know heavy into an engine builder is are people going to want to go they definitely can require a huge amount of, of, you know, intellectual engagement to figure out because you can, with an engine builder, make a decision in turn two. That means that an hour later, you don't have the, 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 the foundation mm-hmm. you need to make your engine work the way that you wanted it to. Like it, it can require a lot of knowledge about how these cards work, what's going to happen, thinking about them. And so if your table is not feeling very cerebral that night, because had a, had a hard day of partying the day before or whatever, maybe an engine builder is the right thing to pull out, but I also definitely enjoy engine builders. It is really cool to see what you can create. That's a really good point, Ken, that I wanted to follow up on. You're, I think that there is a lot of, usually engine builders are games that a person who has played them a few times is going to absolutely cream somebody who has not like played that. And And so if you have people who really don't like that, like they feel like they did a bad job because they got beat so heavily by somebody else, might not an engine builder might not be a good introductory game for for people or if people have a lot of analysis paralysis i think that you also could run into uh some issues with these sorts of games because 
oftentimes people do feel that like they, they feel that that collateral of if I made a bad decision now, I'm paying dividends for it later because it was such a suboptimal choice. Yep. And, you know, if, if people don't really care about that, it doesn't matter. But they can usually have a huge decision space be a little they could uh, lend themselves to be a little more overwhelming compared to other games. I, I definitely walk into often several first you know games so when I'm playing a new engine builder just assuming that I am going to hate all my decisions by the mid game and like it's not necessarily like with any game I'm necessarily walking in for a first game thinking I'm going to you know win it the first time I play it but you know with an engine builder in particular I I know that if I allow the the uh, analysis paralysis to to take me over my first two three games playing it. Um, nobody else is going to have fun, so I, I definitely have to just sit there and know that I am. I'm going to make some really, yeah, you know, some some decisions I'm really going to regret later in the game because I don't understand how these cards work. I don't know what the future cards mm-hmm. are going to be. I assume it's a card tableau building, which a lot of them are. But you know, a lot of them you, you you play them, play them, play them until it starts to click what kinds of things you can do with them. And I, I would definitely feel the best of them that don't have like one optimal engine to build. They have multiple different things you can do and tweak and and have different ways of achieving uh, really cool effects with, with the engine that you've constructed. Now, and this might bleed into the next episode, but one thing that maybe is a good point for something like these games is you kind of do like an intro round where you play like maybe two or three rounds. You don't do a full game. And then people maybe have a little bit of better understanding of how things work. And then you yep. can kind of actually jump into like, okay, now we'll play a real full game. So yep. something to think about with games like that. I always appreciate those those fake rounds. <laughs> They're helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they help a lot. I, I think that's a takeaway you can probably apply to most games. But the games like that where it matters a lot, whereas like Quacks of Clunberg, nobody cares. Like everybody's just playing and having a good time. They don't even care that their decisions were terrible. Like it doesn't matter, you know, but engine builders, they feel a little bit more like it feels a little more personal, you know, like I did a bad job and I, I hate myself, you know, like you you don't want to give people those feelings. So this is probably very wrong, but when I think about like the words engine builder, for whatever reason, the first game that comes to mind for me is Mechs versus Minions, the League of Legends game. Is oh. that is that hmm. would you consider that like an engine builder or is that a different mechanic? That's a good question. So there there is technically it's it's technically its own category with like it's like progr- like a pro I forget the name of it, but it's like a programmable like mm-hmm. board basically, which then you just execute from left to right. So like you have six so for people who don't know the game, it's the League of Legends board game. They have your robot. And the the real gimmick of the game is you basically have this giant deck of cards and you have a board from left to right of six slots. And then you can fill that slot with abilities and your robot must execute those abilities from left to right every turn. And so you kind of program what that robot can do over time. And, you know, the abilities get stronger, but yeah. And, and you maybe could consider that an engine builder. I, I think in its purest form, it is really an engine builder in a lot of ways. Maybe you would, and that's kind of where it fits more into like the tableau sense. And also if you're looking at um, games like Everdell, that's also yep. more like, there is definitely a, dis, a clear delineation between tableau and engine builder, like at the end of the day. But I think they they elicit the same feelings overall. Right. Um, even though tableau building can sometimes just sit a little bit more on the collection side of things. An engine builder is like, no, these things combo off one another. Like there is a delineation, but 
I think for the average player, that delineation doesn't matter. Like it, it, until you really get into the, you know, the meat of board games and you can kind of see that distinction. Even I have a hard time kn- knowing what, what category something belongs in. Like is Terraforming Mars an engine builder or is it a tableau builder? Like, I don't know. It's kind of both. I don't want to say that, you know, a clear engine builder is something like Wingspan mm. or Beyond the Sun that, you know, you are definitely building a thing that makes all the powers you have stronger as the game goes on mm. and, and, and and building it in a way that allows you to build a strategy. So, you know, like, something like Wingspan, you might uh, try to, you know, set, set up your engine such that you don't have to use one of the three uh, tracks or you might, you know, have, have chain powers that let you bounce things back and forth between tracks mm. and, and such. Beyond the Sun is is you know basically a pure tech tree development game that it's all engine builder. Yeah, but. right. It's just it's just rare for something to be strictly a tableau thing. I guess yep. it's it's pretty rare these days. Agreed. So not to beat a dead horse, but let's jump back to Mechs and Ooh. Minions. Uh huh. Sure. Because I think it it blends into another type of game that's like kind of a bigger umbrella term for a game that could have different mechanisms, but that's the co op game. Oh so yeah. Cooperative games. So you're getting are... really good. You're getting really good at this, at this, you know, these bridges. I'm impressed. I know. Segways are not my strong suit, but I'm gonna bring it back. <laughs> no, no, that that was clean. That was clean. Yeah, so Mechs and Minions, actually one of my first co-op games I ever got. I am a huge fan of it. Co-op does have the the the, the issue obviously with co-op is like it's its own thing of just like people are working together in a game but they could have any number of these mechanics that we just talked about. So just keep that in mind when you are looking at a cooperative game. Uh, usually they can be a little bit more limited because like, obviously what I, I'm pretty sure you're not going to really have a worker placement cooperative game just because the whole point of that is you're blocking like other uh, uh, um, players doing things, right? Actually, actually, oh, oh Atlantis oh, Rising. Oh, yeah. Atlantis that's Rising true, is a actually. co-op that's a worker placement. I stand corrected. It is. It is. It does have worker. Yeah. I mean, it is literally a worker yep. placement. That's true. You literally so have they people found, they that found you a place. Way. <laughs> that's true because they do have it to where the AI can then actually ruin you by flipping those tiles over so you don't actually get to do the thing that you thought you were going to do. So yeah, that's true. Definitely say that, you know, co-op games are often very good for for a group that you know have been burned by competitive games in the past mm-hmm. uh, people who feel pressured to perform if they're if they're doing something competitive mm-hmm. people who who really worry about uh hurting the feelings of other players by by doing things i have i have a fairly significant number of friends who will play nothing but competitive cooperative games uh, because they just no longer find it fun to to be able to win at someone else's expense which is the nature of a competitive game and so Cooperative games are also usually the most surprising to new people because they're like, I didn't know that I could play a game that is like not us facing one another. Yeah, exactly. I will say that like usually co-op games have like an element of selecting how difficult the challenge of the game is going to be. So like Spirit Island's a great Mm -hmm. example. You've got like eight different levels of how hard it can be for any given scenario. So I think it's really important Mm -hmm. if you're bringing in a co-op game to match the level of difficulty to the amount of risk tolerance your group is going to have. Because like I dislike very much playing a co-op game if it's very clear early on that we are going to lose. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, because instead of yeah. just one person losing in a co-op game, if you lose, everyone loses. And it's like, it could mm-hmm. be a bit of a downer. Mm-hmm. Or it could spawn you, like, it could make you want to play again. And so you've extended your your time playing the game. But it f- feels bad, mm-hmm. man. Feels bad. Sir, that's a really, that's, that's a really good point because... That, and that could bleed a little bit into kind of like our, our next next talk as well in terms of, you know, how do you get people maybe coming back to a game? And it could be very easy to go, okay, you just take this cooperative game, you put it on the easiest difficulty, we're all going to win, it's going to be great. You don't tell them it's easy, you know, just tell tell them how brutally hard it is. Uh, and then and then you just win. And then you're like, you guys are smart. You guys should play more games. There you go. Slam dunk, baby. Yeah. Kim, I, I know you mentioned earlier that we're the only uh, non-D&D gaming podcast ever exist. Uh, are, are we going to pretend that role-playing games aren't, aren't a thing? Uh, definitely Wait, what, style, what games no. are those? I've, I've, I've never heard of them. Role-playing? What? Ones where you like, you know, uh, represent a character and, 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 and go on adventures uh, with people. I'm so bored. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, RPG games, they <laughs> exist, and they've gotten better over time. I'll give them that. Uh, but... <laughs> I, you know what? I'm not going to allow my prejudice to get in the way here. I'm just going to let Ken talk about this. Oh, no. This is like the <laughs> one type of game that I have more experience than you do, Tim. So this makes oh, me... Oh, I'm sure. Like, I'm <laughs> the, no, I'm the expert here, you know? So the quintessential... The quintessential RPG is, of course, going to be Dungeons & Dragons, which the number yep, one challenge yep. of Dun- Dungeons & Dragons is scheduling your group to play again. <laughs> but yeah, so these are games where you are taking on the roles of a specific character and you, you know, depending on the rules of the game are going through and going on adventures based on a, a set of rules. So with D and D, you know, you're rolling dice, you've got different types of checks that you're doing. You've got a dungeon master who's going to be kind of narrating and guiding you through a storyline. Although if you've played any kind of D and D, you know that like that you get your team can basically throw off the dungeon master pretty quickly. So there's mm-hmm. like a, a lot of it's, I would say more freeform. It's more open-ended. It can go in interesting places, but that can also be a challenge because especially like like when you think about people who have analysis paralysis, when your objective is whatever you want to do in this imaginary world, you can freeze up. You know, if you're not experienced with it, it's hard to think of like what am I going to do? You know, what's my next action when my next action could be literally anything? So that can be kind of challenging to people. Got flair as far as like, you know, how deep into it do you want to get? Do you want to like all of the big D&D podcasts that I've listened to have been like voice actors who have like these really amazing, very fleshed out characters versus my party. We rolled our characters on random generators and just kind of went with it. So you've got different levels of, I would say, commitment to the RPG style as well. I don't know. Ken, what are your thoughts? No, uh, absolutely. Uh, I've played and run a, a fair number. I, I've definitely run things that where I gave people blank character sheets. This is using a, a fate system, but blank sheets and Adam, you know, let's put down a, a couple of lines in their, on their sheet. And then we started playing. And then I, I basically started flushing out the world based on things they wrote down on their character sheets. You know, someone added skills in theft and art. And so then I had an NPC walk up to him and, present to him the, the, the art uh, heist that they'd been talking about previously and asked if he wanted to do that, which he then presented to the rest of the, the group. On the, on the flip side, for preparation, I, I did a, a thing where we had three game masters running three different tables with 
uh, five or six people per table at a, at a game store. And, you know, we're running three different adventures taking place in the same world at the same time. And, and the things that happened at one table would impact what happened at other tables. And for that one, uh, we definitely had to be planning and executing a lot more. So the range and variety of what an RPG can be is huge. Then on the flip side of that, you have more adventure kind of games like Gloomhaven or Descent that you're, 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 you're controlling a character that has powers and can level up and things kind of like a in a, in a computer RPG kind of a game. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's where board games have that's where board games have tried to go, right? They've tried to eliminate like, what if I'm not a really creative? I'm not good at like doing voices or I'm not good at, at like doing that like on the fly creativity mm-hmm. that a lot of people feel like that they need to have with D&D. Like board games have tried to now right. streamline to that. Oh, well, you may not like that part, but what if you like, I want to build a character and I want to level up and I want to get items and I want to like, you know, I want to get that feel. I think board games have tried to take it in that direction. Whereas mm-hmm. Sarah and, and you can have talked about, you know, the, the more pure, the purest form of what people think of when it comes to RPGs, you know, the, you know, the de facto, which is D&D, but board games, you know, have their very own. I mean, Gloomhaven rated number one board game of all time for a couple of years now at this point on Board Game Geek, and that is a giant RPG box. That's that's what it yep. is. Which interestingly is a game that Morgan always brings up that he wants to play. Like we've almost bought Gloomhaven multiple times, and I'm like, do you really know how much? <laughs> Gloomhaven is going to be my final decider as to whether or not I enjoy RPG board games. I, I'm I'm leaving it up to that now. Everything else I've tried is just like. It doesn't scratch the same itch as video games for me. What I would strongly recommend anyone considering uh, Gloomhaven, and including you, Sarah, would be uh, uh, Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion. Jaws of the Lion is a smaller box that has a little bit less uh, uh, potential options and range in where the adventure can go, but it is still... Uh, use the same mechanics as Gloomhaven, still lets you get a, a good taste of what a, a Gloomhaven experience is. Played uh, played a few uh, few adventures for it, but um, I would be all over playing uh, playing that with uh, with you and Morgan if you want to, Sarah. Or and if if that works out and and we like that, and you guys want to do more of it, um, at that point going for the full the full Gloomhaven uh, big box makes sense at that point, I would say. But yeah, Jaws Line is a good a good intro for that with with really streamlined, easy to learn rules that introduce you to the complexities of what Gloomhaven can be. Side note about Gloomhaven, they are printing a second edition. So if you are interested mm-hmm. in that, I think it is being kickstarted right now. So uh, just be aware that I think they are changing so much that... So one common thing with board games, especially with newer editions, they often change a lot of things. Well, it depends on what game it is, but it is not uncommon nowadays for additions to basically be like sequels to a game to where it, they are the same the same races or characters are in it but it plays very different or we've made a lot of rule changes to where we just consider this a different edition of the game uh twilight imperium is one of those great examples where the difference mm-hmm. between third edition and fourth edition for example they're not even the same game or at least i i don't think it's fair to say that they're the same like they have the same races but they, you would not be able to drop a uh, TI third edition player into a TI fourth edition game and they would do well at all. Nope. Um, so just just know that there is now a second edition where they're cleaning up a lot of rules for Gloomhaven. So if that does interest you, maybe have that on your radar. I am definitely going to run a, a one shot for you at some point, Tim, and have you you know experience an a role playing game again to see if, if we can get you to like that. Because I, I I do have to wonder if you just had had a bad game master, uh, bad experience at the table. So at some point that's going to have to happen. Uh, maybe. I mean, it, when I say RPGs, I'm actually not just talking about D&D, but just in general. I feel like board mm-hmm. games just really 
aren't the avenue for that sort of game. I just think that they just don't have near as much to offer compared to whatever digital counterparts there are. But that will be a conversation for another day. You had fun with Descent. Descent was fun, but <laughs> we were already out of items to pick from. Like we <laughs> like I already saw like three swords and that was it. Like those are my options. You know, like I want like the sword mm-hmm. of, of truth or the sword of destiny to pick from, you know? Like I mean it's You want to go play an inventory management game like Diablo, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Let me, Why do I only have five swords in my inventory? I need to. I need. I need, I need right. more space. I need more throwaway swords. They all have to be garbage, and I want more garbage to pick from. Okay. All right. All right. So, what are our last few types of game mechanisms that we want to talk about before we jump into like how to figure out how to match these things to a a, a person's play style? I'm sure we've missed some. The last uh, last one that I think is probably fair to talk about because it also is a pretty big one is area control. You might also think of this as 4X, or this is also what a lot of a lot of people think of when it comes to like, you know, your more hardcore games because they know of like risk, which is, you know, been around a long time. You're just fighting over territory and you're trying to control it. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the whole point of it. And so you, a lot of games use this mechanism as well, peppered in different different aspects so just keep that in mind, but you'll also you also see this mechanism as well. There's not really there's not really too much to explain with it, just because mm-hmm. you know you kind of understand it. You're fighting over territory. You have to hold it for some reason, and you're trying to hold as much of it as possible. It can have more disputes and aggression components to it. So if you've mm-hmm. got people that are not super into that, maybe people who are a little more passive, mm-hmm. people who more like the co-op style game. Mm-hmm probably not the same care the, the same people who are going to love an area control game what what i will say is they do vary a lot in terms of the aggression levels so for example there is a, a very popular uh, game called kemet which kemet is all about fight all the time everybody mm-hmm. has a bunch of monsters and egyptian warriors and everybody's fighting all the time and it's great everybody loves blood okay but then you have games like Twilight Imperium where you're like, oh man, look at all these spaceships and everyone's fighting over galaxies. And it's like, mm. no, everybody's discussing about whether they wish to trade hands. Nobody wants to really fight. You know, like it is an area control game at its heart, mm-hmm. really, but it facilitates it in an entirely different way. It is all about diplomacy and not aggression. So just know that. Even even within area control, you're going to get different levels of how much you fight. I should change out the word aggression with the word conflict. Because I think it's, yeah. if yeah, you're conflict sure, avoidant, sure. if you're conflict avoidant, you're not mm. going to like an area control game. Because there is always, uh, yeah, in, in any flavor, always yes, going to be I would say. conflict. Whether you, mm. you know, engage with it aggressively with like battles, mm. or you engage with it by... Mm you know, political espionage like like Ken does with mm-hmm. TI. <laughs> and I think another thing to think about also, and this just made area control just made me think of this, but a lot of times what area control does is there's fighting and that fighting is facilitated through dice rolls. So one thing to think about also, because this is always in the back of my head anytime I'm looking at a game for my, my wife and I, is are things resolved with dice rolls? Like in general, this is not even just area control, any game. Any game, there's going to be things that like roll the dice and see what happens. And sometimes if just like, if you really don't like when you roll dice and it has like a really bad outcome and you have no 
like a lot of games make up for it by like you have ways of like mitigating or re-rolling or adding value to your dice rolls every once in a while. So this way, bad rolls are not as terrible as they would normally be. But for example, we had a game that my wife and I had that you're by, you, you have two armies fighting. And I mean, this is how most fighting games are. And you both roll dice and one of you could roll terribly. And it, you win a fight that you just for no reason should have won, you know, and yeah. that can that can feel extra bad. Even to me, I'm like, wow, like I shouldn't have won that, but I did. And some people like that. That creates exciting moments if you're with a group of people who don't mind that sort of thing. But also there are people who just viscerally hate that. Just that is one thing to keep in mind with all these games that we've talked about. And it also gets to uh, uh, one last game type that I can think of that you'll see commonly out there. It's called Roll and Write. And they are basically, everybody has a community pool of, uh, everybody has a sheet that they're filling out. Normally, this is why they call it, they say write in there, because oftentimes you have a sheet that you're filling out, you're rolling dice, or you're flipping cards, and everybody has the same options to pick from, and they're filling out their board, and at the end, everybody gets victory points depending on how well they filled out their board. Uh, and er- the fun part about it is everybody had the same things to pick from every time, and everybody does different things, and it is a pretty much completely independent game Everybody's just kind of doing the same activity together, and it's usually easy to get to to get a lot of players in in on it. So just I would definitely say if, if someone has not played one of these, order Railroad Inc. right now. Railroad mm-hmm. Inc. is not very expensive. It is amazing. Even if you hate it, you will be glad to at least know what a roll and write is and have been able to play that. Get it if you hate it. Give it to someone else; they will probably like it. Like it is a very good game and, a, and an excellent example of this type. Yeah, definitely my yeah, my and favorite. I think that covers most. Yeah. All right, so we talked a, a really long time about the types of, of game categories. So why don't we save our discussion of different play styles and how to match games and becoming that game sommelier to our next episode, which kind of goes in with our, our planned topic of planning a board game night, because you'll have to board game sommelier your, your way into a successful board game night, depending on who's going to be at your table. Sounds good. All right. Yeah, I like it. Any games you guys had that uh, as we've been talking about styles, you you really struggle to find uh, find the right group to play with or to get to a table. Have any feelings about why it's hard to, to get that game uh, played? I know, uh, Sarah, you have a game you've been wanting to get played for a while that requires a very precise set of players, right? Wait, what? The adventure game from uh, from college. Oh. <laughs> oh yeah. I think I only <laughs> want to play Talisman if I'm playing with my friends from college, because <laughs> no one. I'm pretty for, I'm pretty sure she's terrified. If we play it, we're going to be like, what is this? No, trash? I would be so self-conscious the entire time because I would be like, everyone hates this game and it's my fault that we're playing it. <laughs> you know, and see this, this is going to be a great segue, you know, like everybody's going to have those worried feelings when they're kind of getting a board game group together, you know, like they're going to be, there's going to be a lot of things that you're thinking about, at least, you know. Maybe the average person, you know, this doesn't really stress me out too much just because I can flip that extra version switch when I need to. But deep down inside, you know, I still want to make sure everybody's having a good time and not hating, you know, the game that they're playing. So I think that do you have a game, Tim, that you uh, love to get to a table, but really struggle to find the right group for, though? Oh, man, I'm pretty fortunate that I have a pretty good group of folk, but I actually know a game that is coming uh, that is on the way. (laughs) That that might be the case, and that's the Heroes of Might and Magic board game. Um, <laughs> I am so, so excited. It is going to be just a giant pool of nostalgia that I just get to just belly flop into. 
and I'm going to see who I can take down with me. All right. Like that's, <laughs> that is, that's the whole point of it. For anybody who doesn't know, Heroes of Might and Magic, it's an old computer game. I probably have the most amount of hours in my lifetime into that game specifically. It is a fun strategy game. I would check it out. Uh, but specifically it's for Heroes of Might and Magic 3, which is the most popular of the series, I'd probably say overall. And it, I'm basically going to get this giant box delivered. I have no idea if it's going to be a good game or not, but I'm going to have to drag some people into it to play it. Uh, and yeah. we'll see how it goes. I can't wait to, for it to get here probably in like two years. So <laughs> I'm hoping it'll be next year. Other than that, we have a good group. You know, it's not yep. it's not too difficult to get people into it. Honestly, the hardest part now is like, I already know I have a lot of games and it's really hard to convince other people like, all right, but let's learn one more game. You know, <laughs> I swear this will be the last time you have to learn anything. It never is. No, I don't. For me, the, the the big one I've had a hard time doing is Two Rooms and a Boom, which is often a huge game at board gaming cons and things uh, to play with big groups. Uh, so I've really had with it is that getting a large group of people to listen while I explain rules at the same time and then mm. to play multiple times to get a feel for it and then and then enjoy doing it uh, has always proven uh, more than I can manage. So I've, I've gotten it uh, gotten it out a few times, but as a kind of a social deduction kind of a game that, that does that, uh, I've, I've struggled. But yeah, just finding finding the right group at the right time with the right number who have the right vibe is has been a struggle for that one. It's also not when I really want to like build a board game night around, which has made it a challenge because I don't want yeah. to like not inviting 10 people over to come play two rooms in a boom, but it's more so just happenstance of like, you know, I invited, I have a general invitation to games and oh man, 10 people want to show up. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And that, that, that has not been a situation that has fallen into my lap recently. So <laughs> it's one I, but yep. I hear you. All right. Well, we will leave that as our conversation for today. And our next topic is going to be planning a board game night and using your board game sommelier skills to match the play styles of your, your table to the game. And don't be intimidated. You don't need to be a sommelier to start getting people into board games or even getting yep. yourself hey into now. board games. But this mm -hmm. is going to maybe put you on that roadmap, you know, like kind of know what's the best, what, how am I going to have the most success getting, getting people to come over and play a game? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I like it. All right. See you then. Right. Thanks guys. <laughs>